So we've been looking at the life of the prophet Elijah. And we have seen that throughout his ministry, he has been contending with the king of Israel, King Ahab. He has been calling him to repentance. He has been challenging his corruption, but all to no avail, all to no effect. And today that story comes to an end, because today we're going to read about the judgment and the death of Ahab. It's a very somber story. And it's uh, what makes it all the more tragic is that you will see, in the end, God is still warning Ahab. Even at the very end, Ahab could repent and live, but he refuses to listen. He embraces a lie, and so he seals his own doom. And it's a chilling story, and it's a warning for us all. Now, before we dive into the text, uh, let me set up the story. Let me give you some of the context. So far, we've been looking at uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. But you should understand that uh, the people of God, the Jewish people, are actually split, divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which is called Israel, which is ruled by King Ahab, whom the Bible says did more evil than any other king who came before him. And then you have the southern kingdom called Judah, ruled by Jehoshaphat, who on the balance is a relatively good king. He, uh, for the most part, knows and fears the Lord. And what happens is that um, these two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, for throughout, throughout their histories, have been constantly at war. They're constantly at each other's throats. But during the reign of Ahab and Jehoshaphat, they enter into an alliance because they face a much greater enemy to the north, which is the kingdom of Syria. And in the story, uh, they go to battle together against Syria, and it's in this battle that Ahab will die. So we're going to read the text. I want to warn you, it is a fairly long story, as you can see. But I assure you, it is full of dramatic interest, twists and turns. And so as I read it to you, it won't even feel like time is passing. All right, so page four in your bulletin. Um, I'll read you the text. Oh, um, so in the text, it, it refers to someone called the king of Israel. This is Ahab. And you'll see this at the very end. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and we keep quiet, and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord, of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, son of Imlah. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, 
but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes, at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chenaanah, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your words be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you will speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chenaanah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into the inner chamber to hide yourself. The king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear, all you peoples. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. 
Now the king of Syria had commanded the thirty-two captains of his chariots, Fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore, the king of Israel said to his driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians, until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset, a cry went out through the army, Every man to a city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria. And they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria. And the dogs licked up his blood. And the prostitutes washed themselves in it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Now, the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, the ivory house that he built, and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. This is the word of God. So, I have four points. Here's the outline. Number one, we're going to look at the false word of the world. Number two, we're going to look at the true word of God. And then we're going to look at the sovereignty of God and then the grace of God. So let's begin. First, the false word. So as I said, um, Ahab and Jehoshaphat are in an alliance. And they face this common threat, which is Syria. And what has happened is that the Syrians have captured uh, the Israelite city of Ramoth Gilead, which is an important city, it's a strategic city, but it's right on the border, and so the Syrians have taken it. And so Ahab says, let's retake the city. And Jehoshaphat, being a stalwart ally, says, okay, I'm with you. But as I said, Jehoshaphat is a, on the whole, he's a godly king. He fears God, and so he says, let us inquire of the Lord first. Let us see if this is God's will. And so what happens, uh, and so uh, Ahab says, no problem. I have 400 prophets for just that purpose. And what happens next is an almost comical scene. You have 400 prophets gathered together, and they're all shouting, and they're all chanting in unison, we're going to win the battle. God is with you. Yeah. (laughs) Now, it's very strange. What is going on? You have to understand the role of prophets in the ancient world. Because the purpose of prophets in ancient warfare, their role was to boost morale. Their job was to psych up the troops, to support the king. And so what we see is this religious pep rally in preparation for battle. And so we have this scene on the threshing floor. The threshing floor is the largest open space in the city, and so it's basically this arena. 
you know, thousands of soldiers are gathered, you know, the 400 prophets. And then the head of the prophets, Zedekiah, he fashions for himself horns made of iron, right, very sharp. And he basically puts on this drama. He performs this drama, right? With the horns of iron, he's like, and then you're going to do this to the Syrians. And everyone's like, yeah. And then you're going to do that to the Syrians. And everyone's like, yeah. And what almost certainly was happening is that they had a captured Syrian soldier tied to a post, and Zedekiah was goring that soldier. Very gruesome. But you have to understand, this was psychological warfare. The whole purpose of this event was to pump up the troops. It was to pump up the king so that they could go into battle. Now, the narrator tells us something quite disturbing. He tells us that these 400 prophets were lying to Ahab. They were saying victory, success, but in reality, Ahab will meet his doom and he will perish on the battlefield. And so what do we learn here? The Bible is telling us something quite profound. It's telling us that these 400 prophets is a picture of the world around us. The Bible has um, a very sophisticated and nuanced view of the world. Because on the one hand, the world tells us true things about God. It tells us, namely, that he exists, that he is good, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. But the world also perpetuates a lie. And it's a lie designed to keep you in the dark. And what is that lie? The lie is that you are safe. Everything is fine, and therefore keep pursuing what you most want and desire. That's what the 400 prophets were saying to Ahab. Do what your heart desires, or to use contemporary language, follow your heart, because God is with you. And just like in the story, that lie is so seductive because it seems like everyone is saying it. It's in our songs, it's in our movies, it's taught in our schools, our friends echo it, right? It seems like the whole world is chanting in unison, follow your heart, listen to your inner voice, trust your feelings. So uh, this is a little bit of a dated example Um But there's a book uh, called Eat, Pray, Love, written by Elizabeth Gilbert. And uh, I remember when it was first published about 15 years ago, for those of you who are younger, um, it was a huge smashing success. It was in all the bookstores. Everyone was reading and talking about it. It was on top of the bestseller list for five years running, which is like unheard of. And then they made it into a movie starring Julia Roberts, and, and the movie is pretty mediocre, right? But the book is actually a, a, a very engaging, entertaining read. And so let me tell you the story, okay? So the book begins with Elizabeth Gilbert in this moment of crisis. She is in a bad marriage. And it's not that her husband has done you know, something so terribly wrong. He's not been unfaithful to her. He has not been abusive to her. But as she puts it, the the sparkle is gone. The chemistry has gone stale. And so at the beginning of the book, 
we find Elizabeth Gilbert deeply unhappy. She feels trapped. She feels like she's suffocating. She feels like she's living this empty shell of a life. And then one night, the crisis comes to a head. It's late at night, 2 a.m. in the morning. She's lying on the bathroom floor, and she's sobbing. Her whole body's like convulsing with tears. And she has this moment of clarity. She realizes that the problem, right, the reason why she is so miserable is because she is not being true to herself. And so for the first time in her life, she gets on her knees and she prays to God. She's not a religious person. She has never prayed in her life, but she feels this overwhelming need to pray. And so she prays to God. She says, God, please give me the courage. Give me courage. Because she already knows what to do. She's just afraid to do it. And then she gets up from her knees. She climbs back into her bed. Her husband stirs awake. He says, what's wrong, dear? And very dramatically, she leans leans towards him and, and whispers, I know what I finally want. I don't want to be married to you anymore. And I was afraid to say it. And in the book, it's like this breakthrough moment, right? It's, it's like this heroic moment because at last, Elizabeth Gilbert is listening to her heart. And then what happens next is she files for divorce. She begins this torrid love affair with a much, much younger man, which is thrilling at first, but uh, it quickly grows stale. She's bored by the relationship. And then there's a scene where she's talking with her friend and she is so frustrated. She's like, There's no passion in my life. There's no heat in my life. She says, I used to be, you know, somebody who's so vivacious and and full of energy. And now she says, I'm like the walking dead. And so the crisis is building. What is Elizabeth Gilbert going to do? What is her heart telling her to do? And then she realizes it. What her heart has been telling her to do all along is... She gets on a plane, she flies to Italy, and she's going to eat delicious Italian food. And that begins the spiritual, that's how the story begins. It's the first leg of her journey of of self-discovery. She eats pasta in Italy, she prays in India, and then she finds love in Bali, right? Eat, pray, love. And let me tell you, I'm saying it a little glibly, right? But it was a huge cultural phenomenon. There were many. There are many copycat books. Uh, the most recent of which is probably Untamed by Glennon Doyle, and people loved this story because it's a story of a woman who's not afraid to go for what she wants. It's this unapologetic argument to be true to who you are, no matter the consequences. And when you read the book, especially when you watch the movie, you can see that they try very hard to portray her as a sympathetic character. I mean. She's played by Julia Roberts, a very famous, very likable actress. But when you watch the movie, and especially when you read the book, you cannot help but to feel deeply sad. Because the whole premise of her life, the whole premise of this journey of self-discovery that she goes on, is the ending of her marriage. And um, it's a marriage that she admits herself could have been saved, She acknowledges that her husband felt deeply hurt and betrayed by what happens, but she sort of dismisses it with a wave of her hand. She says, I'm not going to be 
um, a prisoner. I'm not going to be guilted into staying in an unhappy marriage. She says, I have to be true to myself. I have to follow my bliss. And so you have Eat, Pray, Love. You have Elizabeth Gilbert. You have the 400 false prophets. And they are all saying the same thing. Don't let anything get in the way of what you want. You're safe. Everything is fine. Victory and success. But it's a lie. It's a lie. That leads us to the second point, the true word. So, here comes Micaiah, son of Imlal. And I love what the courier says to him. He says, don't be a wet blanket. (laughs) Don't rock the boat. Do you hear what everyone is saying? Just go along with them. Be a team player. And Micaiah is like, you don't understand what it is to be a prophet of the true and living God. I cannot just make up whatever I want to say. I can only speak what God has commanded. And so he goes onto the threshing floor. And then what Micaiah says next surprises us, right? Because what does Micaiah say? He says, yeah, go to battle. You know, God is with you. Victory, what everyone else is saying. Victory awaits. And some of you are um, scratching your heads and wondering what is going on. I want you to know that what Micaiah does here is actually quite brilliant because he smokes Ahab out. Because by echoing the 400 other prophets, he forces Ahab to show his hand. Because what does Ahab say in response to this? He says, Micaiah, how many times have I asked you to swear to tell me the truth? Oh, it's the truth that you want. You see, Ahab knows that Micaiah is lying which means that he also knows that the 400 prophets are lying. And then Micaiah becomes very serious, very somber. He says, okay, here's the true word of God. If you go to war, you will lose. You will not only lose your life, I'm sorry, you will not only lose the battle, but you will lose your life. And this judgment of God that you've been running from all of your life will finally come down upon you. And so what do we learn here? We learn two things. The first is that the distinguishing characteristic of God's true word is that it offends us. It contradicts. It frustrates our desires. It tells us what you most want to do will lead to death. The true word of God wounds us. It says that our heart desires evil things, and that we are marching inevitably to our doom. And therefore, the only remedy is to repent, is to humble ourselves before God, and then we will live. But that sounds like death to us. This is our greatest predicament. The greatest predicament is that the false word of the world is the delight to our ears. Because it never contradicts, it never upsets us, it only affirms what we want to do, but it leads to death. And the true word of God, we cannot bear to hear, because it tells us that we are wrong. It tells us that our desires are fundamentally broken and disordered, but it leads to life. This is our greatest predicament, the 
the predicament of the human race is that the, the words of life sound to us like death. And the words of death sound to us like life. How then shall we live? The second thing it shows us is that, listen to me, Ahab knows. He knows that he's being lied to. When Micaiah goes along with the 400 prophets, Ahab knows that Micaiah is lying. And therefore, what does that tell us? It tells us that deep down inside, he knows the truth. And the fact that Ahab goes to battle anyway is because he has chosen to ignore the truth and he has chosen instead to embrace the lie and that tells us that though he is deceived, ultimately, it is a self-deception. Ahab is under a self-deception. And when you wrap your mind around that, it is very disturbing. Because what does it tell us about the human race? It tells us that the human race, we all know deep down inside, we know the truth. Paul in Romans 1 says, we in our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. Because we know, but we don't want to know. We hide the truth, even from ourselves. My um, favorite, uh, one of my favorite podcasts is uh, called This American Life. And uh, I'll never forget uh, one of the stories. It's about a man named David Palladino Jr. It's a true story. David Palladino Jr. grew up in Chicago in an Italian family. And at the time of his conception, his mother was quite young. She was only a high school in senior. Uh, she was a, only a senior in high school. And at the time, she was seeing two different guys. She was seeing an Italian guy and she was seeing an African-American guy. And then when she found out she was pregnant, she was like, oh, no. Who is the father? She had no idea. And so she tried to keep it hidden, but of course eventually the pregnancy begins to show. And so her parents were like, who did this to you? Who is the father? Now, she knew she could not tell them the truth. Because first of all, the fact that two guys were involved is scandalous. But secondly, even more scandalous than that, is she grew up in a conservative Italian family with very traditional values. And so they could never accept the possibility that their grandchild would be half black. It would have just been unacceptable. And so she told them the only truth that they could accept. She said the father is named David Palladino. It's the Italian guy. So the parents are like, fine you got to get married to him. So they got married. Fast forward to the day of birth. The mother is lying in the delivering room, and she is sweating bullets. She is so anxious because she's thinking to herself, what if I give birth and out comes a black baby? What is my husband going to say? She had never told him about the other guy. What is my family going to think? And so she prays. She says, God, Please, please, let the baby be white. So she gives birth, 
The nurse places the baby in her arms. She takes a deep breath. She looks down. And to her absolute relief, the baby is white. It's a baby boy. So they name him after the father, David Palladino Jr. And they take the baby home and everything is fine. Except, over the next several weeks, the baby gets darker and darker. And then over the next several years, the child began to take on distinctly African-American traits. He has curly hair, he has a flatter nose, and so more and more, he looks like a black kid. Now, the parents are convinced this is our child. And because it happens gradually, the parents don't notice. But of course, other people notice. So, you know, they'll be in the supermarket, and then strangers will just come up to them and say, oh, it's so wonderful that you guys decided to adopt a black baby. And the parents are like, no, no, this is our baby. And they would have, people would have confused looks. And so the parents had to come up with an explanation. And so they said to themselves, you know, we're both from Italy. Italy is near Africa. So what must have happened is that somewhere in our ancestry, there must have been Africans in our bloodlines, and because of, like, recessive genes, you know, and so it was like this really tortured theory to account for this, but they stuck to it. They never wavered because they could never acknowledge the truth, especially the mother. The mother had built her entire life on a lie. And to acknowledge the truth would be devastating. It would destroy her life. So David Palladino says that after he was born, um, his parents went on to have two more children, two daughters. He describes them as very white, pale and fair-skinned. He says that when you look at their family photos, um, he describes himself, his own skin complexion, you know, he's half black and half white. So he has... He, he sort of looks like Barack Obama. And he says, when you look at family portraits, it is basically a black kid with a white family. It's so blatant. And <laughs> so what happens, right, is that he grows up. He goes to junior high. He goes to high school. He goes to college. And then finally, in his late 20s, he's pursuing now a career in acting. And the only roles that he can land, the only characters that he's allowed to play are African-American characters. This happens again and again. That's the only casting calls that he gets. And that's when he finally realizes through a very painful process that the story he has been told his entire life is a lie. That his father, the only father he has ever known, is in fact, not his biological father, and that he has another father, an African-American father, whom he has never met, he has never been even told about. And so he goes back home, he confronts his mother, and after nearly 30 years, the mother finally breaks down. She confesses to the whole story. Um, the, she, she confesses to the truth. And then David Palladino says something I think is really interesting. He says that when the whole family found out no one acted surprised. 
He says, in fact, it was almost like it was a huge relief. He says, because deep down inside, they all knew the truth. It was staring them in the face every day. But no one could acknowledge that truth, not even to themselves, because the truth was too threatening. It was too traumatic. I think that story is a perfect parable of the human race. We all know the truth. What is the truth? Our lives are not aligned with God. And therefore, we are headed towards our doom. But we cannot accept that truth. This is why we are so anxious. This is why we work so hard. We're trying to escape the coming judgment, but it doesn't work. There's no peace in our lives. So what's the answer? Two points, and this is going to be the conclusion. We need to see the sovereignty of God, and then we need to receive the grace of God. So we need to see his sovereignty, and then we need to receive his grace. So first, the sovereignty. So in this story, we're given a peek behind a veil. Uh, Micaiah sees this vision of the heavenly throne room, and uh, this is quite unique. There's only one other place in the Old Testament where um, you get the sort of behind-the-scenes look, which is the book of Job. And in this scene, God is seated at his throne. A host of angels are standing before him. And God says, who will entice Ahab to go into battle? Now, the word entice in Hebrew means to, like, lure by deception. And so God is saying, who will trick Ahab to his own doom? Now, some of you are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought God is trying to warn Ahab. Why is he trying to trap Ahab? And this is really deep. This is going to cook your noodles, okay? Here's the answer. God is warning Ahab. This is why Micaiah tells Ahab, you are being deceived. And then, furthermore, he tells Ahab, and this is really quite meta if you think about it, he tells Ahab about the plot that has been hatched in heaven. He lets Ahab know that it's a trap, which means it's not a trap, right? If you, if, if you say to somebody, watch out for the trap, it's no longer a trap. And so what this means is that God wants Ahab, he wants Ahab, to repent, and to live. But, at the same time, there is a deeper will of God. And the deeper will is that while God wants Ahab to repent and live, God has already sovereignly decreed that Ahab should die. And how God's deeper will works is that even Ahab's refusal to believe Micaiah's warning is part of God's plan. So that nothing Ahab does thwarts the will of God, and in fact, everything he does, all his decisions, every step he makes, is part of the plan. And you see this in dramatic display in the battle scene. Ahab takes every precaution. 
he disguises himself as a common soldier. By the way, how dumb is Jehoshaphat? Right? Ahab is like, you dress in the shiny, bright clothing of a king. I'll be incognito. And Jehoshaphat is like, yeah, there's nothing suspicious about this plan, for sure. Right? But in any case, this shows you that Ahab knows, at least on some level, that Micaiah is telling the truth. But he thinks maybe that he can outsmart God or out somehow outrun the judgment of God. And at first, it does seem to work. The Syrians who are specifically targeting Ahab have no idea where he is. The disguise is working until, the narrator says, a random archer, not knowing what he was doing, he shoots an arrow up into the sky and it just so happens to land right between the armor on Ahab so that if it's a little bit between, a little bit to the right or to the left, it would be nothing. But it heads just the right spot, a one in a million shot, and therefore Ahab perishes. What do we learn here? We learn two things. Number one, God is absolutely sovereign over all things. Every molecule, the tiniest details are under his control. And God is sovereign over human decisions so that even rebellion, even our own unbelief does not frustrate God. It actually fulfills the will of God. And then the second thing is a challenge. How will we respond to this truth? Will we shake our fist in defiance and say, this is not fair, And so we make God our enemy, in which case God's sovereignty will be an absolute terror in our life. We'll always be anxious. Or will we see God's sovereignty as a shelter in the storm? And therefore, the greatest comfort, because no matter where we find ourselves, no matter what the circumstances, we are always exactly in the middle of God's perfect and good will for our lives. And so either God's sovereignty is the greatest terror or it's the greatest comfort, you decide. You choose. Last point, the grace of God. So I want to go back to the first point. The first point is that the true word of God is unbearable. We cannot hear it unless we know the gospel. The gospel is the only truth we can bear to hear. The gospel says, the gospel says that we are sinners. It wounds us. It offends us. But at the same time, it saves us. The gospel says that we are in fact more wicked, we are more lost than we can possibly imagine. But at the same time, we are more loved and we are more forgiven than we could ever dare hope for ourselves. The gospel says that we deserve the arrows of God's justice. We deserve to perish like Ahab as the just penalty for our sins. But on the cross, Jesus took the blows of justice in our place. There's a wonderful little verse um, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, and it says this, Your life is hidden in Christ. What does that mean? Your life is hidden in Christ. Imagine that you you are standing on a battlefield and there are arrows flying all around you. 
but you have with you a great shield. And this shield surrounds you, it envelops you, so that you are hidden behind it. And so, so that all the arrows that were intended for you strike the shield. It hits the shield instead of you so that you are safe. That is who Christ is. I want you to know that if your life, listen to me, if your life is not hidden in Christ, no matter how secure you make your life, no matter how big your checking account, no matter how much you exercise or eat healthy, your life is inevitably headed towards doom. There is no security. There is no safety in this world. The scariest thing in the story, in my belief, is at the very end. The narrator summarizes the life of Ahab. And on the balance, by worldly standards, Ahab lived a very successful life. When he died, he died rich and powerful. Verse 39 says that he had a house of ivory. He lived in absolute luxury. He built for himself many cities. He was greatly accomplished. He was a very powerful king. In fact, Ahab is one of the few Israelite kings of whom we have records outside of the Bible because of his renown, because of his stature. But the Bible says that in the end, all of his accomplishments, all of his wealth, counted for nothing. It it offered him no protection. Because in the end, the arrows of God's judgment can penetrate even the tiniest chink in the armor. But I want you to know that if your life is hidden in Christ, no matter how naked and exposed you feel, no matter how tiny your checking account, no matter how weak and frail your life may be, you are absolutely safe in the love of God. Nothing can touch you. You can stand on a battlefield and arrows will fall to your right and to your left, but not a scratch. And the only blows that will land are the wounds of justice that God has allowed in your life to wake you up to his love and to his grace and that you might grow in his love. You are absolutely safe in his love. Let's pray. Almighty God, in the life of Ahab, we do not see such a radical departure from our own lives. We confess selfish ambition, spiritual pride, and a heart that is cold to you. And when we see his doom, we see the just penalty for our own sins. But thanks be to God for Christ on the cross who takes away the sins of the world in whom we find redemption and new life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.